So today we're starting our new sermon series, which I've titled All the Paths of Yahweh. It comes from Psalm 25, which we will be looking at today. And in this series, we're going to be looking at Psalms 25 through 37. And we're actually picking up where we left off uh, in this section of the Psalms way back in August of 2015, which because of COVID seems like 50 years ago, right? Well, if you've been here the last 10 years, we've been in a few preaching series in the Psalms. In the summer of 2013, we started with Psalm 1, and we began working our way through. We had a series called The Soundtrack of Our Lives. Then in the summer of 2015, two years later, we picked up where we left off and jumped back into Psalm 13 in our series, Transmissions from the Satellite Heart. And then in February of 2017... We fast-forwarded ahead in the Psalms and began a series that I titled Films for Radio, where we looked at the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134. That series was interrupted by a sabbatical I took in the summer of 2017, but we picked up where we left off when I returned in the fall, and now we're going to spend this summer looking at Psalms 25 to 37 Uh, picking up where we left off back in 2015. So turn to Psalm 25, where we will see that all the paths of Jesus are steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's good news for weak, weary, suffering sinners like us. We have a good shepherd who leads us and who often has to carry us close to his heart in his bosom as The prophet Isaiah says. We're just going to cover half of Psalm 25 this week because there's so much goodness in this psalm to try to cram into one sermon. I tried and I gave up. So sorry to do that to y'all, but honestly, I'm just so giddy with excitement to be back in the Old Testament because we spent almost two years in the book of 2 Corinthians, and then we did a series on the undomesticated attributes of God. So this Old Testament seminary major is ready to be back in the Old Testament. So Psalm 25, David will teach us how to be disciples. If David was on Twitter, he'd probably tweet something like this, fall on your knees and tell him your needs. Fall on your knees and tell him your needs. David knows that this is how discipleship works. This is Discipleship 101. It's coming back to Jesus time and time and time again with all of your problems and with all of your needs. And David has learned that a lot of the problems and stresses and anxieties in life can be cured if we learn to do this one little simple thing that he tweeted out to all of his followers. So let's look at verse 1, Psalm 25. Hear the word of the Lord. To you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. 
So Psalm 25 is what scholars call an acrostic psalm. It just means that the beginning word of each sentence or each line be, uh, continues with each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And you can look at Psalm 119 in your Bible, and each little paragraph begins with each letter. So Psalm 25 follows this acrostic pattern for the most part. There's a, a few places where it doesn't follow it exactly, but scholars still classify it as an acrostic psalm. It's each line it begins with each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But Here's sort of the structure to Psalm 25. In verses 1 through 7, David tells God about his worries. And then in verses 8 through 14, David tells us about Yahweh's ways, who he is, what he's like. And then in verses 15 to 22, David once again tells God about his worries. So it's kind of like a sandwich. He, he pours out his heart, and then he tells us about God's heart, and then he pours his heart out to God again. And it's not a bad way to pray, by the way. You just start pouring your troubles out right at the beginning of your prayers. And then you remind yourself who Jesus is. And then you go back to pouring your troubles out. So it's like, Problems, and then promises, and then problems, and then promises, problems, and then promises. Not a bad way to pray, if you ask me. You start by just pouring your troubles out to the Lord. Why? Why do that? Why start there? Because your troubles and your problems are very pushy, aren't they? Troubles and problems invade your life uninvited, and they just barge into your life. Problems and troubles just show up and move right in. They're like a bad roommate. And that's what our problems and troubles do when we try to pray, right? What happens when you try to pray? Because if you're like me, you start to pray to Jesus, and then suddenly all the heavy things that are on your mind and on your heart just interrupt your prayers. You're talking to Jesus, thinking about him, and then suddenly your troubles come to mind. You're singing a song, you're worshiping like on Sunday morning, just enjoying the Lord. Maybe this just happened to you. You're just singing your heart out to Jesus, and then suddenly some trouble or some problem that's in your life enters your mind. Right in the middle of you singing a song to Jesus. Well, understand this if you haven't figured this out yet. All the things that cause us stress and all the anxieties of life do not wait to be invited into our prayers. They just barge in. They just cut in line. And so what do you do? Do you tell your troubles this? Now, Mr. Trouble, I'm busy right now. You know the rules. Come back later when I get to the S in the ACTS prayer acronym. I'm on A for adoration. And then I will go on to C for confession. And then I will move on to T for thanksgiving. And then and only then will I finally get to supplication. And that's when you can show up, okay, buddy? Listen, Mr. Trouble does not care if you follow the ACTS acronym when you pray. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. He knows he's supposed to wait till supplication before you bring that up before God. But he doesn't care. Your troubles and your problems just jump in. They cut in line. They barge into the middle of adoration. That's how the troubles of our hearts are, right? 
troubles and problems and worries and anxieties and the sufferings of life just barge into your life uninvited and they barge into your prayer life uninvited. And Paul Miller captures this in his book on prayer when he says this. The criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. Don't try to get the prayer right. Just tell God where you are and what's on your mind. That's what little children do. Tell him where you are weary. If you don't begin with where you are, then where you are will sneak in the back door. Your mind will wander to where you are weary. The very things we tried to get rid of, our weariness, our distractedness, our messiness, are what get us in the front door. That's how the gospel works. That's how prayer works. So instead of being paralyzed by who you are, begin with who you are. That's how the gospel works. God begins with you. It's a little scary because you are messed up. God would much rather deal with the real thing. And Jesus said that he came for sinners, for messed up people who keep messing up. Come dirty. So when you pray, just tell God where you're at with, with what's on your heart. Just, just spit it out. Be like a little kid. Just say what's on your mind and on your heart. Because if you don't begin with where you are, where you are will sneak in the back door of your prayers. And your mind will wander to where you are, to where you are hurting, to where you are stressed, to where you are freaking out. So just start there. Start where you are. That's what David does here. He begins Psalm 25 with where he is. He begins in verse 1 and says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. David goes straight to Yahweh. By the way, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that's the English translators letting you know that in the original Hebrew language, this is God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. You'll hear me refer to God as Yahweh a lot in the Psalms because his name is just there. We'll see God's name everywhere, but you'll hear me refer to Yahweh because that's God's name and he wants us to call him that. This is his name, Yahweh. So David cries out to Yahweh, and he lifts up his soul, which is just another way of saying that he's pouring his heart out. And this isn't just a little prayer that you might pray before a meal. You have to feel the desperation and the perspiration of David's prayer. This is no small matter. He's sweating bullets. His heart is enlarged by all of his problems, so he tells God where he hurts. He tells God what he's worried about. He tells God about everything that's freaking him out. But notice that David says, oh my God. This is like ancient Near Eastern SMS text speak, isn't it? This is like the first OMG text ever. David sends a text to Yahweh that says, OMG, in you I trust. And it's just three simple words in Hebrew that start out Psalm uh, 25, translated into seven words, it's, oh my God. See, it's personal for David. He's my God. We were just singing, Jesus, my Savior, is mine. This is a personal relationship for David. 
I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this verse. He said, already the sweet singer, that's David, has drawn nearer to his heavenly helper. For he makes bold to grasp him with the hand of assured possession, calling him my God. Oh, the more than celestial music of that word, my God. What sweet, heavenly, celestial music are those two words? What sweet, heavenly music? My God. You might want to spend some time thinking over the fact that Jesus is your God, Christian. It's personal. It's intimate. He is close. He is near. But then David says, in you. So he looks to Yahweh. His trust is in the Lord because he has nowhere else he can go. Where else can we go, Grace, but to Jesus? Who loves us like he does? No one. Well, then David says, I trust. The Hebrew word used here for trust, batak, has the idea of feeling safe and secure. So it's a trust that brings you a feeling of safety. It's a trust that makes you feel secure. David doesn't just know things about Yahweh. He knows him personally. He feels safe and secure because he knows him. My God. So it's just three words in Hebrew, seven in English, oh my God, in you I trust. We can do this though, right? We can pray this prayer, right? If you struggle to pray, this is a great little prayer to pray. No matter what you're going through, kids, if you're scared at night laying in your bed, you can pray, oh my God, I trust in you. Starting a new job, Oh my God, I trust in you. Whatever's going on in your life, this is a prayer for everything. This is a prayer for anything that can happen to any human being on the planet. Is just to say, oh my God, I trust in you. And maybe that's all the prayer that you can get out. Oh my God, in you I trust. And that's okay. Because it's a great prayer to pray no matter what is happening in your life. Because isn't life, isn't discipleship learning over and over and over and over and over again to trust the Lord? Isn't discipleship about learning to say, to pray, to sing, to believe? Oh my God, in you I trust. I feel safe. I feel secure because you are my God. And you just keep doing that over the course of your life. And you just keep praying that over and over and over again. So prayer is simply pouring your heart out to Yahweh. And then rehearsing some promises and rehearsing some truths about him. And then going right back again to pouring your heart out. That's what David does. He talks about a problem. Then he goes back to Yahweh. That's faith. And it's this pattern of gospel recalibration that sustains David. May I suggest that you follow David's pattern? Tell God exactly how you're feeling. Dump it all out. Have a good cry session. Tell him your fears, your hurts, your worries. 
Then rehearse what you know about Jesus. Rehearse what you know about him. And then pour your heart out again. That's faith. Faith is being real with God about the condition of your heart in prayer. Sadly, too many Christians think that faith looks something like this when you pray. And listen, you don't have to start with something like this or start like this when you pray to God. So many Christians think we have to start like this. Almighty sovereign Lord of all creation, in mercy thou hast vouchsafed me entrance into thine holy presence whence I come now and only by thine grace to beseech thee with an administration to a view of gaining thine ear as I delineate to thee now the multitudinous afflictions of mine soul. That's how some people think you're supposed to pray. At least start that way. Start that way and then you can dump your troubles out. God doesn't require you to do that. God is not so insecure that he can't handle if you to start your prayers with a problem and not some formal address to the king. Faith just dumps all the pain and the ugliness and the doubt and the worry and the confusion out before the Lord and says, have you seen this? Have you seen what's going on in my life? Let me show you them one by one. Here's all my junk. Here's all my troubles. Help Please intervene because I don't think I'm going to make it. There's not any of that, thou hast vouchsafed unto me thine. None of that. Your kids don't do that, do they? Do your kids wake up in the morning and say, Oh, glorious mother and father, who hast brought me into thine world and hast given thine wisdom to correct and guide me. No, they don't. They just barge in, don't they? She hit me. Can we get donuts? They just barge. Are you not a child of the king? Is he not your heavenly father? You can approach the throne of grace confidently and just barge into his presence and say, here's what's going on. If David were discipling you one-on-one at Starbucks, he'd probably tell you over his frappuccino, Fall on your knees and tell him your needs. And David does this in verses 2 to 3 when he says, Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. David has needs here. David needs to be vindicated. David needs his enemies to shut up. He is being harassed by some dudes who are probably mocking him, mocking his trust in Yahweh. And David asks Yahweh to intervene and to shut these guys up. He's crying out, these guys are really bothering me. They're getting under my skin. Do something, Lord. And you can pray that way too, Christian, with desperation and perspiration. David prays that he won't experience shame Or have his enemies gloat over him. But then he says that he knows that those who wait on Yahweh will not be ashamed. So it's like, don't let me be put to shame. I will not be put to shame. So what is this, David? Are you schizophrenic here? David isn't schizophrenic. He just lets his theology inform his very real heartfelt prayer he prays one don't let me be put to shame and then he follows that with none who trust in you will be put to shame 
That's theology informing your prayers. That's theology syncing up with the real weighty needs of a human heart. David trusts in God, but he still prays to God. He still pours his heart out to God. This is instructive for us. David knows that all who wait for Yahweh will not be put to shame, but he still prays that he will not be put to shame. He knows his theology, but he also prays his theology. He trusts in the God who will not let him be put to shame by his enemies, but he still prays that he would not be put to shame by his enemies. And so understand this. Our theology should instruct our prayers. Theology is not reserved for bookshelves. Theology and doctrine are not reserved for seminary students writing papers and theses and dissertations. Theology is not just reserved for commentaries. Theology is to be used in prayer. Theology is to be used in our prayer closets. And so our theology and our doctrine and what we believe should infect our prayers. It should form the words we use in prayer. And Psalm 25 wants you to know that. This means then that we can come with our real problems, our fears, our feelings, pour them out to God while still knowing and affirming good theology. For instance, we know from Romans 8.28 that all things work together for our good, right? But that doesn't mean that we just sit back and do nothing and never bring our cares before the Lord. We don't just sit back and say, Dear Jesus, I know that Romans 8.28 says that you are going to work all things out for my good, so thanks in your name. Amen. No, we pray, we pour our hearts out, and we ask God to work all things for good while knowing that God does and will work all things for good. Listen, this is not unbelief to pray like this. It is not, not faith to pray this way. In fact, it is faith. Faith turns to God and prays about all the things weighing on one's heart while knowing that God will work all things out for good. That's faith. In fact, sometimes faith and trust is painful. The Hebrew word used in verse 3 for wait, it's the Hebrew word kavah, It captures something of the tension of waiting. And so in all the Semitic languages of the ancient Near East, this word and all its related forms have meanings that suggest tension or twisting, like being twisted up in knots. In fact, the Hebrew word for rope or cord, kav, comes from the same root. There's a reason why in the ancient Near East... When they came up with the word for wait, they're like, what what word should we use for wait? How about let's get it from the word for rope because it's all twisted and tied up. One of the words for wait is related to the word for rope, cord, or to twist in knots. Why did they pick that word? Because when we have to wait on the Lord to intervene in our lives and answer our prayers like David here, Our souls are all tied up in knots, right? It's the word for bind or twist. 
When we have to wait on the Lord, there's tension. We're being twisted like a rope. We're twisted up in knots. In God, we twist, I guess you could say. In God, we trust. And that's why waiting is hard. Waiting might be the hardest thing for a Christian to do. Waiting, you think having a daily quiet time is the hardest part of being a Christian or loving that very difficult person in your life? Waiting might be the hardest thing. Evangelism, you might be like, that's hard. I bet waiting for you is harder than sharing your faith with a stranger. Waiting might be the hardest thing for disciples to do. It's the hardest part of suffering and undergoing difficult seasons of life. The hardest part of any suffering or trial is the waiting, right? It's hard because it's located in the the dimension of time. It's located within moments and seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years. Suffering and sorrow and hardship live in time. That's where suffering and sorrow live. In clocks and in calendars. And scripture's one word answer to suffering is always wait. Because we would love instant relief from suffering, right? Instant relief from pain. Instant relief from heartache. Instant relief from trial, trials. Instant relief from hardships. Or at least that's how I always react to suffering. Always, okay? I always react that way. I want instant relief. Instant relief, instant answers, instant restoration, instant reconciliation. But that's not how this life of discipleship works, is it? The answer is often wait or twist, right? According to Psalm 25, the answer is twist. According to Psalm 25, the answer is live with the tension. The God of Psalm 25 says, trust me even when I twist you. Trust me even when I make you twist. Okay, that's a heavy thought, isn't it? So let's leave it behind for a bit, okay? It's getting a little convicting because I don't like waiting. I don't like living with the tension. I don't like being all twisted up in knots. So let's leave that behind. Plus, we're over halfway through this sermon and we haven't even reached verse four yet. I told you I was very giddy about getting back into the Old Testament, so you can't be mad at me. I'm just not a big fan of Hebrew words that remind me that the life of faith, the life of discipleship, is sometimes one of twisting or waiting on the Lord. But I know it's true. Okay, let's look at verse 4. We'll leave that waiting word behind, that twisting word behind. Verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait. Oh dear, there's that word again. David is not going to let us get away from this idea, is he? And now I don't like David. For you I wait all the day long. I twist all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Yahweh, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So David spills more ink on his needs here. One, he needs to know God's ways. And number two, he needs 
forgiveness. David wants Yahweh to make known to him his ways, his paths, which I think means that he wants to know what God is up to in his life as he's waiting, as he's twisting, as he's living with the tension. He wants to know why the things that are happening are happening. He wants Yahweh to teach him his ways. He wants Yahweh to show him what to do in specific situations. I don't think David is thinking of God teaching him his ways in his word. I think David has in mind all the ways and paths that God in his providence is leading him. Namely, why are these guys after me? Why am I on this path, Lord? And we all feel like that when we suffer, right? Why is this happening, Lord? Show me. What's your purpose in this? How are you going to get glory in this situation? I want to know, Lord, why? That's what David is getting at here. Show me your ways. Show me what you're doing, God. Teach me, because I don't understand. As Ralph Davis says, so he seems to be praying that Yahweh will teach him how he is working in his case as he goes on and to let him experience his faithfulness as he goes on. Isn't this what so thrills a Christian believer? He or she can look back and sometimes trace those ways of the saving God, ways and paths that seem uh, sometimes twisted, looking as if they operated by hook or by crook, and yet we found that disappointments led to deliverances, frustrations to escapes from temptations, and difficulties strangely prevented disaster. And when the Lord gives us a glimpse of those ways, we know why we long for him all day long. That is thrilling, isn't it? God is working things out for our good. And one day, and maybe real soon, we will, even though we're so confused right now, we will be able to look back and see that disappointments led to deliverances. We're experiencing a disappointment in life, not knowing that it's a part of this situation that's happening is I'm going to experience some sort of deliverance in my life. Or frustrations led to escapes from temptations. Maybe the frequent sins that you're plagued with, maybe some frustration in your life is actually sparing you from some temptation that would destroy your life. Or maybe difficulties in your life strangely prevent some disaster coming into your life. This is all part of the joy of following our Savior. And David once again uses that word waiting or twisting here in verse 5. He wants Yahweh to lead him, guide him, teach him as he lives with the tension and is twisted up in knots while he waits. David needs guidance and direction as he is twisted and as he is trusting in Yahweh. And I imagine you have been where David is before too. You have the same God, Christian. But David also tells us that he needs forgiveness too. So he prays that Yahweh would remember mercy and steadfast love and not remember the sins of his youth. Aren't you glad that Jesus can't remember the sins of your youth. I mean, yes, he's omniscient. He knows them. But he doesn't choose to remember them and treat you based on the sins of your youth. Lord, have mercy on us because many of us were really, really bad as teenagers, weren't we? Yeah. We need mercy. David needs mercy too. 
David doesn't need a bunch of I told you so's from God. He doesn't need a bunch of shame on you's. He doesn't need a how dare you from Jesus. And neither do we. We need comfort. We need assurance. We need the gospel. The Hebrew word that David uses in verse 6 for mercy describes the tender compassion, the, the tender feelings that Yahweh has for his people. It's related to the Hebrew word for womb, actually. It's the compassion and the tenderness that a mother feels for her baby who came from her womb. So it's this surging maternal care that God has for us. Is that how you view God? That he has tender care for you? Tender feelings coming from his heart for you? Like the love and care that a mother has for her newborn? You can think of him this way because he is this way. This is how he feels for you, Christian, as you are waiting and twisting and living with the tension of whatever's going on in your life. His heart moves out towards you with tender care and tender compassion. Don't think that he's not involved. Don't think that he doesn't care. He cares. So You have no idea how much he cares for you. And that may be all your heart needs to hear this morning. But David also speaks of Yahweh's steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which we've seen over and over again every time we've been in the Old Testament because it's everywhere. It's God's loyal covenant love. It's his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says. It's a love that is centered in the will of God, meaning God is determined to love us, no matter how bad we are or how far away we run from him, he cannot be persuaded to stop loving us. It's what he's doing with Jonah. Let me take a moment to plug our evening service DVD series again on the book of Jonah. It's not too late to jump in. Man, this is a great book. It's a great series. God loves Jonah and is chasing him down. On the map, according to your viewpoint, uh, Nineveh would be all the way up here in the northeastern area. And where does Jonah want to go? Anybody remember? Tarshish, which was all the way like over here in Spain or Portugal. So instead of going all the way up here where he's supposed to go, Jonah's like, I'm going to get a boat. And to him, that was the end of the earth. I'm going to go as far as I can to get away from God. And so he goes down to get a boat to go down to Tarshish. And he goes down inside the boat and thinks, now I'm safe, I can sleep. Well, Jesus owns the wind and the waves, doesn't he? He cannot be persuaded to stop loving Jonah. He cannot be persuaded to stop loving you. This is the heart of God for you, Christian. This is the heart that hears you when you pour out your heart to him. So remember that when you don't feel like praying or when you feel like God doesn't care. He does care. Just ask David. Just ask Jonah. So David prays to know God's ways and then to experience mercy. But then 
He affirms that he will know God's ways and he will experience mercy. So David does this whole prayer thing once again. This whole ask Yahweh for something, then in faith say that he will get what he asks for thing. He does it one more time. Look at verse 8. He's already prayed to know God's ways. He's already prayed to experience God's mercy. Now he's going to say, I will. Look at verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my guilt, for it is great. So earlier, David prayed for guidance and mercy, and then his theology informed his prayers, and now he speaks about how God leads and guides sinners and pardons them too. His focus is on Yahweh's goodness here. He rehearses his theology and tells us that all the paths that God leads us on are steadfast love and faithfulness. Every path that the Lord has you on is good because he is the one leading and guiding you. Now, of course, we don't call everything that happens to us on the path as good. We don't call sin good. We don't call evil good. But because Yahweh is our shepherd, wherever he leads us is a path of steadfast love and faithfulness. He will be faithful to us on the path. He will love us on the path. Whatever path he leads us on, and however far we stray away from that path, And we can count on that. We are fickle, but he is faithful. And Psalm 25 stresses to us the goodness, steadfast love, mercy, forgiveness, and friendship of Yahweh. It's highlighting the heart of the Lord. This is the God of Psalm 25 who walks with you and hears the heaviness of your heart prayers. And isn't this what you need to know about Jesus when you are plagued with troubles? Don't you need reminders of his goodness, his steadfast love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his friendship? Is not David telling us that Jesus deals in trouble? That these are the waters that Jesus swims in? He's called the man of sorrows by Isaiah for a reason. Because he suffered. Because he experienced trouble. Because he experienced heartache. Because he experienced betrayal. So Jesus is not immune to your suffering. He walked dark paths where his father was leading him, namely a path to the cross. So Jesus says to you as you suffer, as you walk in the valley of the shadow of death, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and I've got the grace that you need to endure. You need grace today, and Jesus is giddy with excitement to give it to you, Christian. We need grace whatever path we're on, don't we? Because do not our sufferings and do not our sins twist us up as we walk the paths that we're on? Yes. David is asking to be released from the twisting stress and worry and accusation from his enemies. And he's asking to be released as well from the twisting nature of shame and guilt, the shame and guilt of his sin. So David needs vindication and he needs forgiveness. So he falls on his knees and he asks Yahweh to vindicate him and to forgive him. Because as he says, my guilt is great. 
See, we're just like David. Our guilt is great. It's big. It's not a small thing. So we need mercy and compassion, tender care, forgiveness, pardon, and Jesus is more than willing to give it. So do what David does here in Psalm 25. Tell Jesus you need forgiveness and then thank him that he does forgive you. This is simply rehearsing the gospel. It's what David does in 25. He needs pardon. He needs forgiveness. And what does he do? He runs to Yahweh. He runs to Jesus, not away from him. So instead of being paralyzed by who you are today, paralyzed by how sinful you are, begin with who you are. Begin with where you are. And just come to Jesus. He came for sinners, for people who are really messed up and people who really keep messing up. So come to Jesus today. Maybe you've you've never put your trust in Jesus. Today would be a great day to do that. You just come and say, Jesus, pour your heart out. Jesus, I'm a mess. I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. Please forgive me. Have mercy on me. And he will. And you will be saved. If you haven't come to Jesus, come to him today. For all of us, come dirty. Come messy. The real Jesus wants you to come messy. Come with your messed up hair. Come with your morning breath. Come looking like you've been paying the high cost of low living. Jesus knows the real you, and he still loves you, and he still welcomes you. And that's amazing because Jesus knows your heart better than you do. He sees everything in our hearts, and he still loves us. So fall on your knees and tell him your needs. Just say, OMG, in you I trust. Let's pray. Jesus, we just come to you, pour our hearts out. No formal address. We need you. Our guilt is great. Lord, we have all sinned horrendously this week. We have stressed, we have worried, we have yelled at people, family members as we were stressed. We have fought, we have bickered, we have lusted, we have coveted. Maybe even had murderous thoughts in our heart and mind, God. And on and on it goes, Jesus, you know. We're just trying to keep it real. We come to you today with our guilt being so great, but knowing that you are an even greater Savior. Your grace is more than enough, God. Your grace is greater than our sin. And so we thank you for loving us. Thank you that we could thank you that you're not so insecure that we can just dump our heart out to you Jesus and just tell you what's going on and we just tell you this morning we need you we need your forgiveness we need your grace we need you to help us get through what we're going through help us on the paths that you've led each one of us may we see and sense and feel your steadfast love and your faithfulness to us and then may you be glorified in our lives May you be glorified. You're such a great Savior. Jesus, may we leave here today saying, what a Savior. What a Savior. What a Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.